Chapter 13 of The Heart of Hyacinth by Noto Watana Two strangers to Sendai, tall and uncouth-appearing foreigners, came down the main street, walking in the swift swinging fashion peculiar to the westerner, so totally unlike the shuffling slide of the native. They seemed both amused and irritated at the sensation they were creating, for a veritable little procession followed at their heels. Small, solemn, and mystified Japanese boys they were, for the most part, who regarded them with the same awesome curiosity that would have bestowed on a wild beast. A round-eyed, startled little boy of twelve had followed them all the way from the station at which they had entered the city. Others had quickly joined them, until gradually the following had increased uncomfortably for the foreigners, since these astonished and curious Japanese ran sometimes ahead of them to stand in their track and gaze up at their faces. Annoyed, the strangers quickened their speed to a rapid gait, which forced the sandal-wearers into a run in order to keep pace with them. It was noonday and very warm. No jinrickshaws were in sight. The strangers would have welcomed the piping cries of the numerous jinricksha men of Tokyo, who had pestered and swarmed about them there like flies. Here in the city of Sendai, there appeared to be no public jinrickshaw stand as yet, and the tavern to which they had been directed had not as yet dawned upon their vision. You seem to be on the chief street, said one of them. Better turn here. They turned swiftly down a cross street, which seemed rather a long road, and the sides of which tall bamboos sprang upward to a great height, bending at the top into an arch which cast its shade below. The houses were set back some distance from the road, though garden walls, in which a small bamboo gates isolated each dwelling. The foreigners had now slackened their speed. Their following had diminished considerably and those that remained were now keeping at a respectful distance from the heavy cane, which one of the two swung back and forth in his hand with apparent carelessness. There was a hideous head on the knob of this stick. Was it possible that this might be a fiend whose touch would kill any little boy venturing too near? So the strangers, less troubled by their dwindled following, began to look about them with some interest. The street upon which they found themselves appeared cool and refreshing because of its shadowing trees. There was an atmosphere of refinement and aestheticism about it that delighted the appreciative foreigners. You see where it leads, said the one of the cane, pointing with a stick down the thoroughfare. Straight down to the water. What a wonderful sight. At a point where the street curved upward to a slight elevation, Matsushima, still at a good distance from them, burst upon their view. The visitors stood as if entranced. One of them lifted a pair of field glasses to his eyes. After a full minute's use of the glasses, he passed them silently to his companion. The other regarded the scene with equal admiration. We must go up there tomorrow without fail, he said, waving his hand towards the heights on the opposite shore. Yes, assented the other. I understand there's quite a party coming along tomorrow. Yes, some Tokyo priest is escorting them. Well, a tourist might well visit the cemetery of his household. The other regarded him with some bewilderment. The cemetery of his household? he replied. Yes, there is a place where, three hundred years ago, a Japanese feudal lord named Dato, I believe, sent an envoy to Rome acknowledging the Catholic supremacy. This is practically the birthplace of Catholicism in Japan. Well, this is all very interesting, I must say. Yet I understand the only mission here at present is Presbyterian. Exactly. Catholicism has been practically stamped out. There was a horrible massacre of the Jesuits here at one time, I believe. This visit by the priest and the party may do something for the place. They resumed their walk in silence. 
I don't fancy, said the elder one, that it will be possible for us to shake off this little herd behind us. The thing for us to do is to find the will-o'-the-wisp of a tavern or the mission house. Where do you suppose the place is? The mission house, rest assured, is elevated on some hill. Suppose we turn upward and... He broke off, at the same time stopping abruptly in his walk. There were before a little garden composed of white stones and fantastic spreading trees, seeming to bend their boughs over the miniature lake, as if to regard their own reflected beauty. But it was not the distinction of the garden which attracted and startled the strangers, but the little figure which leaned over the gate. Filtering through the treetop by the gate, the sun slanted full upon the head of the girlish form, bronzing the hair almost to the colour of deep gold. The girl's eyes were wide open, as if with faint surprise. Her lips were apart, and she was plainly flushed with some unwanted excitement. She wore a plum-coloured kimono, simple and exquisite. About her waist was an old gold obi, and there was a flower ornament in her hair. The wings of her sleeves fell backward, disclosing arms of perfect whiteness, and little hands which clung in tremulous excitement to the bamboo railing of the gate. The tourists had been some months in Japan. One of them was an attaché to an American consulate. Well acquainted as they were with the soft-eyed, cherry-lipped beauty of young Japanese girls, they stood speechless, startled, before the picture that Hyacinth presented, as she in her turn gazed in wide-eyed astonishment at them. The mission house folk were the only Westerners she had ever seen. These strangers did not at all resemble the Reverend Blount or his friends who came at different times to visit him. Even their clothes had a different cut, and their pleasant faces, in spite of their light eyes, to which she could never become accustomed, were shaven smooth and clean. No devils, thought Hyacinth quickly, would have such countenances. A mistake could be made in the popular impression. Nevertheless, the strangers were certainly odd curiosities. She blushed all rosy red, even her little ears and neck tingling with pink as they paused before her. Half unconsciously, she bent her head and made a timid little motion of greeting to them. The younger man, the one with the huge stick, said in an undertone, I'm going to speak to her. Then he went a pace nearer. Can you tell me where the Jawdrop Tavern is? He asked in atrocious Japanese. For a moment, she hesitated. Then the faintest smile lurked in the corners of her mouth, and a dimple peeped out in her chin. Her voice was sweet and low. The humble one cannot understand such language, she said, pretending ignorance of his words, and secretly hoping that she might provoke further speech from these strange men. Before the stranger could frame his question in plainer language, Aoi appeared in the path, hastening down anxiously to the gate. She was overwhelmed with distress, she declared, that the august ones were followed so rudely by the children of the community. Would not the excellencies condescend to pardon the little ones? They must appreciate how strange they appeared to them. But as for her, Madame Ayoi, she was well acquainted with their people, since her own lord had been English also. The two men looked at each other, and then at the young girl, as though understanding now her strange beauty. What? asked Ayoi. Is it the Excellency's desire that they have deigned to halt before our insignificant abode? We wish to be directed to some tavern, some place where we can secure accommodation. Ah, yes, exactly. In the village on the shore of Matsushima there is the Dewdrop Tavern, but it is some distance away. If the Excellencies will follow the street for a little while longer, they will come to the Snowdrop Hostelry. There the Honourable Ones will be welcomed with august hospitality. The strangers lingered a moment, 
watching the two figures at the gate, now curtsying very deeply. Then they turned slowly and resumed their walk. Asinth turned to Aoi in great excitement. I'm going to follow them also, mother. I wish to hear them speak again. What strange, deep voices. It was enough to make a maiden jump ten feet with fright. And how the gods have blasted their countenances. Did you notice, mother, how their skins were bleached like white linen? She shuddered. Aoi smiled indulgently. When one becomes accustomed to the white skin, little one, it appears very beautiful. Ah, uh, not on a man, said the girl with immeasurable disgust. But perhaps it is a custom of their country. Who knows? They are barbarians, are they not? Perhaps these men whiten or chalk their skins, like the priestesses at the temple. Nay, it is all natural. But Hyacinth shook her head, still uncertain. Such beings were unnatural, more so even than the Reverend Blount or the mission men. Curiosity stirred within her. She must know if the strangers acted as the human beings she knew. Quickly she formed a plan. She would follow them at a distance and slip in at the back entrance of the Snowdrop hostelry. Then surely her friend, Miss Perfume, the daughter of the proprietor of the tavern, would permit her to listen behind the shoji and to watch these curious strangers unperceived through peepholes in the wall. Chapter 14 The Snowdrop hostelry was as quaint and refreshing as its name. Here the low-voiced, shy-faced mistress overwhelmed the strangers with expressions of welcome, while her maidens vied with one another in caring for their comfort. The strangers were accustomed to the eccentricities of the country, and so with resignation they seated themselves upon the floor, where on little, brightly polished, lacquer trays the waiting-maid set out for them an inviting and delightful repast. Upon one tray was fresh and fragrant tea, egg, fish, rice, and soup on another, fruit, persimmons, and plums on a third, and on a fourth, slender, long-stemmed pipes in huge tobacco barns. Now, said the younger of the two, we can talk with some degree of comfort and privacy. Let his companion's slight glance of uneasiness towards the waiting maids. The other assured him they could not understand English. Let us go over the entire matter from the beginning, then, said the other man. Mr. Matheson, our consul, assured me. Mr. Matheson, our consul, assured me that you would give me all the assistance and information you could. Oh, certainly, but you must remember, Mr. Knowles, that I am entirely in ignorance as to what information you desire. Mr. Matheson gave me a number of papers in the Lorimer affair, and I presume this case is in some way connected with yours. Exactly. I am Mr. Lorimer's attorney, and have been four months in Japan, looking up this matter. Yes? You already know the circumstances? No, not at all except that a letter from some missionary started Mr. Matheson on an investigation which brought to light a letter written about seventeen years ago to the Nagasaki consul. He was an awful fool, the consul, you know. Let everything take care of itself, though this matter was clean forgotten, or rather ignored. It seems his successor was a brighter fellow, and he sent a correspondence from Sendai to Nagasaki on to Tokyo. Yes, and I believe the letters you hold will supply the missing links. Let me tell you the facts of the case, that is so far as I know them. About eighteen years ago, Mr. Lodomer was married to Miss Barbara Woodward, a Boston girl. The marriage was one of those unfortunate, hasty society affairs in which the parents play the leading parts. I understand, the other nodded. They were mismated, continued the narrator, unsuited to each other in every way. Their temperaments constantly jarred. They had few interests in common. Life became a burden to them. 
time, however, did much to heal the breach, and finally Mrs. Lodimer expected to become a mother. They were in Japan at the time, and she had a fancy that the child should be born here. In spite of her happy expectations, she became excessively morbid and pessimistic. She began to have hallucinations to suspect my client of impossible things, infidelity and so forth, and hence acted as only a thoroughly unreasonable woman would. She conceived an unreasoning dislike for a Miss Farrell, and, I understand, accused her husband of being in love with the lady. Doubtless, fancying she was wrong, the poor misguided thing left her husband, in short, ran away from him. Mr. Lorimer took steps to ascertain her whereabouts, but was unsuccessful. Under the circumstances, he returned to Boston, secured a divorce, and uh, married Miss Farrell. The younger man frowned and cleared his throat slightly. Ugly of her, he simply essayed quietly. Yes, it was. Average woman a fool, but now I come to the point. There was a child. The young man whistled softly. I see, and the father wants it, naturally. And the law gives it to him? Certainly. But we have reason, fortunately, to believe that in this case the power of the law will not be necessary. The mother, we believe, is dead. Ah. Now I come to the papers in your hand. Ah, uh, yes, here they are. I haven't even looked at them. Ah. The sheet trembled in the lawyer's hand. Adjusting his glasses, he read the paper carefully, and then struck it sharply with his hand. This is exactly what we want he said. It is enough in itself. Yes, said the other, mechanically. It gives us the subsequent history of the wife and practically the whereabouts of the child at that time. Good. I can't see why it is necessary for me to come. It's devilish hot, said the other, mopping his brow complainingly. My good fellow, you are lent to me by our consul. I believe you can assist me in the work of finding the child. It, she, is here in Sendai, it seems, or she was. Let's see what the other missionary writes. He unfolded the letter and read. American Consul Tokyo. I take the liberty of addressing this letter to the various English, American, and German consuls in Japan. I wish to advise you that there is a white child in Sendai, the adopted daughter of a Japanese woman, concerning whose parentage that appears to be some mystery. The child has been brought up entirely as a Japanese girl, and does not know as yet of her true nationality. She seems to be married to a Japanese youth, a Buddhist by religion. As she is a minor, and I consider this an outrage, I am of the opinion that steps should be taken to ascertain the parentage of this young white girl. I am with respect, Reverend James Blount. Phew, said the younger man. We must be hot on the girl's trail. It would be a coincidence, wouldn't it, though, if she preferred to be the same. The former missionary also wrote from Sendai, said the lawyer. There is not the smallest doubt in my mind that the child is the same. There was a slight stir behind the paper shoji beside them, causing the two men to glance towards it quickly. Then, with slight frowns, they nodded comprehendingly to each other. One of the unpleasant things of this country, said the younger man, is that privacy is an unknown quantity. As you perceive, we have had not only watchers, but auditors. He indicated, with a nod of his head, a few little holes in the shoji, through one of which a little rosy-tipped finger protruded, as it carefully and cautiously widened the opening. The next moment the finger withdrew, and an eye, withdrawn from a smaller hole above, was applied to the larger hole, and the eye was blue. "'Christmas!' cried the attorney, springing to his feet indignantly. "'Our listeners are not merely Japanese, it seems.' In vexation he strode to the shoji, shook it angrily, and then savagely pushed it aside. There was a great fluttering from within. The sliding doors were now pushed wide apart, showing the inner apartment in its entirety. 
a bright-hued kimono was disappearing around an angle which led to a long hall, and close upon its heels a girl in a plum-coloured kimono tripped and fell to the floor in a heap. Over to her strode the two men. She put her head to the mats and crouched in speechless fear and shame. What do you want? the elder one demanded. And what do you mean by listening at the door like this? She spoke with her head still bent to the floor. The insignificant one wished only to listen to the voices of the excellencies. The peculiar quality of her voice struck the men with a familiar tone. It was a voice they had heard but a little time since. But some white, somebody with blue eyes was here too, somebody not Japanese. Excellency is augustly mistaken. Excellency was not augustly mistaken, and if she did not explain immediately, Excellency said he would raise the roof. Whereat she got to her feet very slowly, and lifted her face in strangely tremulous appeal to them. They recognized her instantly. Those abominable blue eyes, she said, alas, belong unto me. She bowed in humble deprecation. What were you doing? Pray pardon the foolish one, I did follow you to gaze upon you, she said, flattered against their will and fascinated by the girl's peculiar beauty, the men's smile upon her. And why did you wish to gaze upon us? Because, Excellencies, the humble one wanted to satisfy herself whether the illustrious ones were gods or... or... She retreated from them ever so slightly. Or... Or... The younger man repeated. Or what? Devils, she said in a whisper. They burst into laughter. All their good nature was restored in a moment. And what are we? inquired the elder man. Neither she said, looking at their faces very earnestly. You're only just plain men, just like me, same thing. How is it you could not understand our Japanese before, yet you answer us now? My ears were stupid then, they are brighter now, was her paradoxical response. The elder man turned to the other. I have an idea, let's question her. She's a half-caste, apparently, and may be able to help us in the search for the Lodomus child. Good idea. Give me the first letter. Better make sure the woman's name. Ah, oh, here it is, Madam A. Peculiar, unpronounceable name. Hollyhock in English, said the younger, looking over his shoulder. The girl suddenly turned to the strangers. Excellencies, I also understand little bit English, she said. You do? Yes, and I also listened to that conversation. Which was a very wrong thing to do. She seemed serious, and regarded them with an appealing expression in her eyes. Is there really little English girl at Sendai? Yes, do you know her? She shook her head. But, she said, I'm extremely sorry for her. Why? Such a wicked father. Oh, no, he's a very fine man. She continued to shake her head. He's got not a wife now, she suddenly asked. Yes. Then he done also won his little girl. Oh, but he does. He has no other children, and is crazy to find this one. Hyacinth sighed. Well, I think I go home. Excellencies will pardon me. One minute. Do you know somebody? A woman named, and the juices is pronounced, Madam R.O. Madam R.O., she repeated softly. No, I do not know such name, but, but my mother, oh, August name is little like that. Madam R.O. The two men started, the same idea occurring in a flash to each. Joe, said the younger. Thus it is ended. The girl stared at them with puzzled eyes. The elder man went a step nearer to her, bent down and looked very closely at her face. Do you know, he said softly, I have a strong suspicion 
But you, you are the child we are looking for. Me, she stammered. With sudden fright, her lips parted. She became snow-white, the colour ebbing out of her face under their very eyes. Her little hand was placed almost unconsciously over her heart. Me, he repeated faintly. That, that little English child. Excellencies make august mistake. You excuse yourselves, if you please, you. Trembling, she turned from them and moved towards the exit rear. As they followed her, she turned her head, looking back at them over her shoulder, bright in her eyes. Suddenly she made a quick dash forward and plunged blindly into the dark inner corridor. Her footfalls were so light they scarce could hear them, even with their ears strained, but hastening to the window, they saw her fleeing up the street.